Hi there, coaches. Thanks for joining me, Dave Mullins, for another ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast episode. I'm joined by Dr. Tiff Jones today, who is a certified mental performance consultant and founder of X Factor Performance Consulting. As you'll hear, she's a former varsity soccer player and college coach and specializes in mental skills training for athletes, teams, coaches, and corporations. She works with a number of college tennis teams, so is very familiar with our space. I think coaches will walk away from this conversation with so many things to think about as we pack in a lot in a relatively short amount of time. Dr. Tiff Jones, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Thanks for having me so much. Can't wait to get going. Yeah, this is great, Tiff. Obviously, you've done a, a masterclass for us and you're going to be at our convention this year and we'll get into that a little bit later. But interested in your in your background, I know you were a, a former soccer player at the college level yourself. You were an assistant college coach as well. And I'm interested now that you're working with college athletes, working with coaches how has the student athlete experience, how has the coaching experience maybe evolved or changed since those days or, or has it? Yeah, I think, yes, I think it has changed. Um, I think it's changed a lot for the better. In some parts of the student athletes, I think it's become more difficult for the coaches in a lot of ways. I think the student athletes, a lot of us will say, well, they don't have the skill development that they once had. They're not as tough as they once were. They don't have the coping skills. And some of that is true because, again, technology makes things very simple and people want to blame parents, but parents have been um, hot messes for the you know, beginning of time. I don't think there's a generation of child who comes out and goes, our parents' generation rocked the parenting. <laughs> so I want to stay away from the parent end of things, but I do think it's technology. You know, The prefrontal cortex is now six years on underdeveloped because it's, you know, brains a muscle and they don't have to use the muscle as much. And so we're finding it's like, really, you're not coaching 18 to 22 year olds in college, you're coaching 12 to 16 year olds. This is why I don't coach <laughs> and, and good for the coaches that do. But what I mean, why they're not equipped with the skills. So I think part of it is just accepting that you don't have to like it, but as a coach, accepting it and having the patience to develop those skills. So I know we coach a lot of times because of the X's and O's and wanting to win. And yes, we want to develop the person along the way, but I think you have to develop the person first before you can really dive into the performance components. Um, And then I think it's more challenging for coaches because the pendulum has swung so much and it's all about the well-being of the student athlete in the sense of like, you try to hold them accountable and they say it's emotional abuse. They're not in the lineup where they want to be. And now you're a toxic coach or like they know the words to throw around. And I don't think the administrators on a lot of college campuses are equipped with the background or the knowledge on how to handle those situations. So I feel like there's less support for coaches. So I think this is a really challenging time for coaches, even and so many of them want to help the student athlete and they want to support them as humans but we have to be able to hold them accountable and we have to be able to challenge them in ways that are uncomfortable, that are, but that are not physically or psychically, psychologically unsafe. There's a difference between unsafe and uncomfortable. And I find that as soon as coaches create an uncomfortable environment, which is what we should be doing, then all of a sudden they're emotionally abusive or toxic or they've created an unsafe environment. And I don't really find that's the case in most places right. that I go. So I think that's how it's changed. 
Yeah, I, that was my experience. The job has got more challenging. I, I feel for our coaches and, and some of the things they're dealing with. I remember in 2016, when I retired from coaching, sitting down with our athletic director at University of Oklahoma and just saying the job I signed up for in 2004 is very different to the job I'm now doing in 2016. And, and he couldn't have agreed more. <laughs> he was he was like, yeah, it's I mean, he's been an athletic director for decades and he's seen all those changes. And, and I think we all have a lot of empathy for those that are of us in the industry have so much empathy for the coaches. Um, those outside of it don't have enough empathy, I, I feel like. I mean, that's a scary thought that these coaches are now dealing. They think they're getting an 18-year-old, but potentially they're getting a 13-year-old, which just blows my mind, but but makes a lot of sense. So, you know, when you've signed a player, maybe that's six months before they get on campus, maybe it's a year, maybe it's a year and a half, whatever it is. What steps can a coach start taking with the player that they've signed before they get to campus to start preparing them for what they're going to face, you know, and the changes and maybe the intensity in, in competition, intensity of practice and just their life on a college campus in general? I think it's starting to make sure that they have a strong background in the psychological and emotional skills that will be needed. And I'm not trying to plug myself. There's a lot of great programming out there. That's why I put together something for high school. And there's another program for college student athletes. And so I have many programs that are using that now, especially with incoming student athletes over the summer um, is like five, the basic five topics that I would want them to know. Um, and develop the skills before even getting onto campus. And then they kind of have the same language. They have an understanding of why the coaches are doing what they're doing or why they would put them in uncomfortable situations in practice or why it's important to be more self-aware and not always go to external sources to you know, ask how you're playing or what you can do better. Like they have to become more aware. So I think it's giving them some sort of platform. Books are great, but like they often don't give very specific hows to develop the skills. And so you want to make sure you find some sort of programming that they can go through before they even get to campus. So at least they have some foundational knowledge and it helps the coaches back. It backs the coaches because it gives the science behind like why coaches make some of the decisions or why they coach a certain way. I think that's something that could be, is very underutilized, but could really be helpful. Yeah. So the the player now gets to campus, uh, you know, and, and as I speak with coaches and, and again, my experience as well, you know, we're often disappointed with certain individuals. We 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 have a sense of what, you know, their max effort is or close to their max effort. I don't think it's, you know, a lot of people say you got to give 100%, 100% of the time. I just, I, I don't believe in that ethos. I think you're, you're, you want to get as close to max as on consistent a basis as possible. But, you know, how do coaches address that lack of effort with individual players and, and kind of how patient should they be in that process? Well, I think first, this is where the awareness of the athlete has to come in. Only the student athlete is going to know if they gave a hundred of whatever they had that day. And so I'm with you. You can't give a hundred of something you're not, but if you're 50%, I expect that you give me a hundred of your 50. Um, and only the student athlete is going to know really, did they give a hundred of what they were or did they sabotage themselves or did they just give up? And so rather than guessing that the student athlete isn't giving effort, because sometimes they're so in their head, they're not able to move. So biomechanically and their thoughts are going a million miles an hour, they're not moving or it looks like they're not trying or giving max effort because literally their body is frozen. So again, the worst thing you can do is tell a student athlete that they're not trying when really in their head, they're like, all I want to do is try. All I'm trying to do is get like out of my head. I want to move. I want to do the things you're asking me to. I don't know why I'm not or I can't. 
And so that's where rather than going at them, it's really getting them to yeah, ask questions. So as a coach, ask questions, try to get to the why of what's going on. I find that a lot of times when you do that, they're like, I'm in my head. <laughs> like, I want to give max effort. I'm here. I want to compete. I want to be in the lineup. But uh, they're also stifled by fear a lot of times. And it's expectations. I've been talking a lot about this the last, I don't know, couple months is why was playing tennis so fun when you were six? Mm. And they're like, well, there was like, we just played. We had fun. We didn't care about the results. We, you know, and then they'll talk about pressure and I'm like, what creates pressure? And then they'll say expectations and expectations are fixed in time. If you had control, Dave, over the entire universe, your coaches, your teammates, your body, your health, like your, all of it, you, this is what you could expect to get, but we know you don't have control over so many of those things. As soon as you have expectations put on you internally or externally, you start to go, well, what if I'm not in the lineup? What if I'm not good enough? What if I, all the what ifs, what if I get hurt? What if, you know, coach doesn't like me, my teammates don't like me. Okay. And then as soon as you start saying what ifs, the fear comes in. How are we, are any of us going to be high functioning individuals in our profession or in our sport if we're constantly in a state of fear? And so our, I always tell student athletes, their bodies are never going to feel like six-year-olds again, but you can take the lens off and think and be a six-year-old. So you could hit a hundred forehands out as a six-year-old and you get one in, you hit one in and you get in the car and you talk about the one you hit in. And now you could have a player who hits a hundred in, misses one, and all they do is talk about the one that they missed. Yeah. And coaches, are we only talking about the one they missed? Like, I think with this generation, especially, we have to identify why you're good. Like, if you play well, why did you play well? You know, if you gave 100% of whatever you had today, why? It wasn't just that you were feeling it. There are things in your control that maybe you're unaware of that allowed you to give 100 of what you had or allowed you to play free. And so it's almost more important to identify those things. The athletes are going to tell you why they suck. They have no problem telling you why they suck. They're (laughs) terrible at telling you why they played well. And so I'd much rather create, and I'm not like fun, like kumbaya, but joy. Like going back and being a six-year-old and you miss a forehand and you make the adjustment, you miss it a different way, you make the adjustment, right? And it's not this doom and gloom and fear that my forehand is broken. Mm -hmm. So again, it's moving away from expectations, goals are slideable. So if you got hurt, Dave, like we would slide your goal this way, you come back, you're healthier, we're going to slide maybe your goal this way. But all goals do is what can I do right now in this drill, in this practice that will get me one step closer to my goal? And that goal could be slideable every day. And so I think that's a huge thing for coaches is to like be careful of setting these unrealistic expectations. You can talk about goals, but the goals aren't even, it's slideable. They move and adapt based on so many different things. So again, I want our kids to, our kids, I call them kids. I want them to be six-year-old kids Mm. when they're training Um, and then developing the sophistication of how to lock in, how to give intensity, but get away from the results expectations, because that is absolutely destroying our student athletes in college, especially. So we've gone from them being 18 to 13 to six, but I I get you. I get you. Um, Oh, amazing advice. So I probably should have asked this question because I asked the question, once you've signed a player, now the player's there and they're maybe disappointing a little bit with their effort, but I really should have started with asking you, what are some of the red flags coaches should be looking for during the recruiting process? So I always say there's biggies. And then there's like small ones that if the small red flags add up enough, it might become a biggie. 
who's who's writing the emails to you? Who's texting? How quickly are they responding to your text messages or your your emails or your phone calls? Because you know they're attached to their phones. <laughs> so they should be like right on it. If something's important enough to you, you make the time to do it. So you never hear student athletes say, oh man, I didn't have time to get on social media today. I'm like, <laughs> so I'm looking for that. Are, who's, are they carrying their bags? Are mom and dad overly involved? It, you know, when I said it's not parents' fault, but you can get a lot of indication from that player from their parents because they typically are an extension of one or both of their parents or guardians. Mm-hmm. And so you know, looking at those things, looking how they are, you know, all the things, body language, how do they adapt when things aren't going well, when they're playing tennis, but so much of it is even off the tennis court. And it's just watching interactions that they have with um, officials to other coaches, to their opponents, to their families, to their friends. But like the big red flags are like, you know, time of things. How long does it take for them to get them things done? Details, handshakes, picking up trash, you're looking for those things that, you know, and, and it, maybe none of those are real big red flags, but there's little ones. Like, do they want to come to your school and get better or do they want to win? I always say you can ask the three questions of like, who's the high, what's the highlight of your life? Who's the hero of your life, alive or dead? And what has been the biggest hardship of your life? And how have you dealt with that? Are they blaming others? When they start talking about that, or are they proud of themselves because they figured out a way to push through and have learned? So again, are they blaming? Are they making excuses? Are they, did they run away from it? Are they quitting every coach if they're not winning? Are they sticking with the same coach? Like there's so many little things. And as a coach, as a college coach, you need to make sure like, what is my non-negotiables? I don't care how talented a kid is. These are some of my non-negotiables. So that when you go in, you're not drawn to just the talent and you ignore your gut and you ignore your non-negotiable. So writing those down and then just writing down what are a list of red flags. And if I hit so many of these minor red flags, that is a major red flag. Makes sense. Yeah. No, I love that question around, you know, what hardship have you endured? I was listening to some other podcast a while ago and it was kind of a corporate consultant who was helping with the hiring process and they brought in a you know, this 4.0 lacrosse, you know, champion from Duke or or some one of these high, you know, academic universities. And the they they asked that question and he said the biggest hardship was uh, having to drop a class in his junior year of college. And the consultant said, under no circumstances are you hiring this individual because they haven't had to deal with anything hard in their life. And as soon as they face something difficult, they're just Mm going to crack and potentially burn out. So yeah, I love, I love that question. Okay. Well, we've talked about the, I guess, individual student athlete, but would like to move over to kind of team culture. This is again, an area our coaches are are super Mm -hmm. interested in and constantly talking about and trying to understand how to improve their team culture. But again, what are some of the warning signs for a coach that their team culture might be headed in a potentially detrimental direction? Well, I think some of them are, well, I think obvious, maybe not obvious for everyone, but the clicks, you're going to have friend groups on a team, but if it all of a sudden it's like a clicky, they're only hanging out with each other. They're only practicing with each other. The negativity, the blame, 
blaming things on other people if they're not in the rotate like in the lineup where they want to be they're bad mouthing other players those are very easy signs and you just have to open your ears coaches and watch like you can't just ignore this stuff and pretend like it's not there like I'll know within 30 minutes of watching a practice probably if there's something going on because you're just watching body language how they interact with each other eye contact how they cheer for each other or pump each other up or how they hold each other accountable and so so are they holding each other accountable? This is always a big thing for teams. And so something that's e- easy, honestly, to do is you have above board behavior and below the line behavior and you make it, it's not personality. It's not who the person is. It's what I hear and what I see. And so if someone's talking trash, that's below line behavior. For me as a teammate, it's like, hey, we don't talk trash. You know, you address it. If they continue to do it, it needs to go to the coach because I don't want the players trying to give energy to someone who clearly that's a below line behavior. It doesn't matter who you are. You can correct that behavior. Behavior is changeable, mutable. Um, it's a choice. And so personalities, not as much, but behavior, yes. And so it doesn't matter if you're the star player or if you're a player that doesn't. If you talk negatively, I'm going to say, hey, that's below line behavior. Stop. It takes kind of the who it is. It's a senior Versus a first, like a first year, or, you know, oh, they're the stud player. It doesn't matter because if you don't address it, then your behavior is below line behavior. Like, no more of this, I'm going to ignore, hide, pretend like it's not happening. That's how quickly. And so, a team that's very aware of themselves individually, they need to be able to lead themselves before they can lead anyone else. And this is why I'm not a big captain person because I haven't met a lot of 18 to 22 slash 12 to 16 year olds who are aware of themselves, let alone then trying to lead a team. So I think a lot of the development has to be on self-awareness and that individual person knowing themselves, knowing their triggers, know what sets them off and become more sophisticated in their behavior and their response rather than reaction. And then you can move on to the team. Um, but sometimes we put people in positions that have no business being in that position. And you wonder why team culture isn't great. Well, the people that you have put in play as leaders can't lead themselves out of a paper bag, let alone like mm-hmm. help their teammates. Yeah. I mean, I guess every year, right, is the start of the new year. And we're, we're in that right now. We're in September. You know, coach has a chance maybe to reestablish the culture. Maybe they've lost a couple of players. They've got a new, you know, few new freshmen in. And I hear that a lot. Like the coaches are kind of excited when, you know, certain players are seniors and they've moved on, but it has a tendency, you know, the, the problem doesn't necessarily go away just because they've left. But let's say every year, let's give them benefit of the doubt. They can restart. But what about when you're in the middle of the season? Let's say it's, it's the dual match season. It's February. You're culture is just getting away from you. Is there anything that can be done, you know, other than the advice you've already given to salvage that season and get the culture back on track? Are there any things that, you know, can kind of shock everybody's system to, to get back on the same page? It's really get tapping into why do we see the behavior? So again, this is sitting every individual down. You're not going to probably be able to do this on a collective group setting. So is it more time for the coach? Yes, that's why I'd rather you put the time on the front end so you don't get into the middle of February to try to tackle this. So yes, coaches look at me like I have to, I should do what to create this culture? I'm like, yeah, it's a lot of work on the front end, but man, it's nice ride in the back end. So or else it's just torture all the way through. So take take your pick. But you have to individually set people down and say, listen, you've got to you got to be honest with yourself. And, and like you're being negative or you're trashing or you've stopped giving effort. And I need to know why that is. So and it's usually gonna be fear-based. It's going to be uh, self-protection. There's so many, so much that goes into this that I'm not going to get into now, but there's ways to go about and ask questions. 
But again, as coaches, we can't guess. And every individual is going to be different. Their, their behavior might be similar, their below line behavior, but their why behind it is going to be different. And we've got to tackle that why or we're not going to be able to change behavior. And with that then, so you're dealing with that individual player again, you're having these conversations, you're trying all these different, I guess, tools and ideas to, to try and help them along. I mean, is there a point where you give up on a player and, and you know, realize the, the situation isn't salvageable or do you come from the school like you never give up on a player? What are your thoughts on that? No, no, because you can't save someone who doesn't want to save themselves. Hmm. So if I'm not seeing any behavioral changes... I don't mind if I see someone, they backslide a little and then they recorrect behaviors. So I'm okay with that. There's got to be room for that growth and you're going to slide back into bad habits. But a first year gets a pretty long leash for the first year. If I don't start seeing consistent behavioral changes by the time they're like sophomores, then I'm going to start thinking that this isn't going to work. I will give a longer leash if that person, if that player's behavior is not impacting the rest of the team in a negative way. But I am not going to try to save the one, especially when they don't want to be saved to and hurt the whole. Mm. So as soon as I think that that one player who isn't making any behavioral changes, who isn't giving any effort to do so, does not want to do so, and that's hurting the team culture and hurting the rest of the team, then that for me, even if I love the kid and I see potential in them, that's when I would let them go. Because you can't hold on to someone, I don't care how talented they are, if it's ruining team culture and impacting the experience that the rest of the team is having. So back to this idea that coaches are, you know, basically recruiting and coaching 12, 13, 14 year olds, depending on, on their level of maturity and experiences and background. Mm-hmm. But then we also have coaches that are 24, 25. I mean, I started my coaching career at 24. So are they operating as, as 18 year olds? And, you know, how do they go about improving their self-awareness and their communication skills? Because that's a lot of responsibility on a 24, 25 year old. Maybe they're coaching two teams. They're a head coach of, of both the men's and women's teams. They might be managing 20 to 30 players and personalities. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice on, on how they can speed up their own development and, and communication skills? I think investing in themselves. So doing like a true North sports who helps coach the coaches, um, having a mentor, someone, whether it's in my field or reaching out to someone like you, Dave, where you're meeting on a pretty regular basis and doing some like exercises yourself so that you make sure that you're very aware of yourself and your communication style, what your strengths are. And not like just doing strength finders, not that I have anything to do with that, but a a deeper dive into those things and really understanding where some of your habits have come from and typically how you respond or react under pressure and stress. What are some of your non-negotiables? What are some of the things, what are the most challenging student athletes or administrators to work with and why and how to better communicate? So I think it's investing in yourself as a young coach and and doing that work. It's almost like going back to school a little bit. And I always say most coaches, they have the most touch points with a student athlete has to have the least training. I went to school, strength and conditioning coaches go to school, nutritionists go to school, massage therapists go to school. All these people go to school for their profession, except most coaches. And so you have to check your ego coaches. It's not your fault. But be aware that you're right. I haven't had necessarily training. I often coach the way I was coached or the opposite of how I was coached. And I'm holding on for dear life. And it's okay to say it's more. It's awesome if you can say, I don't, I know, I don't know what I don't know. Like, like help me. And I think there are more and more coaches now who do have 
someone like that in their life who they talk to and get, are given exercises to work on during the week and then meet back with that person. And I find those are the coaches that are often having the most success. And just around mental health, obviously, you see the statistics and, and they're quite frightening. I mean, I have two teenage boys and, you know, have, have a lot of concerns about the statistics that I see in, in uh, various different places and, and the direction you know, mental health is is going uh, with our younger folks these days. But, you know, other than, well, firstly, what is maybe the number one mental health issue that college coaches are, are seeing in their student athletes? And then other than providing them with resources on their campus or within their athletic department, is there really anything a coach can do to help and support and, and kind of what is that needle they're trying to thread between supporting, but also understanding their limitations mm -hmm. around, you know, they're not counselors, they don't have PhD in psychology or anything close to it in, in most cases. So how can they help? Because they want to help. Yeah, of course they do. And I think there's a distinction between mental health and mental disorders. You could have a mental disorder and be extremely mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. And you could have no mental disorder and have very poor mental health. And mental health is something that we all need to focus on. Like it's not just our younger generation, um, especially with the past 18 months that we've all lived through, like mental health is, it affects everybody. It's just like physical health, right? So it's also differentiating between that too. That doesn't mean someone with poor mental health shouldn't go see a psychologist because if you have poor mental health for a long period of time, it can debilitate you in aspects of your life. And that's usually when you know someone probably needs to see someone is when relationships are fractured or you're struggling in an aspect of your life and can't seem to get it together so to speak, is I wish everyone went and talked to any, someone anyway, even if they were totally mentally healthy, it's good to keep mentally healthy, right? But the anxiety, the fear, the stress, being in their heads, being overwhelmed. And what I mean by mental health is there's a lot of things that we're doing, especially in our generation that sabotages their mental health that's in their control. So being on their cell phones, I'm finding student athletes in college are on social media and cell phones six to eight hours a day. And when are they usually on it? At night when they should be sleeping. So now not only are they on social media, which increases cortisol levels by 80%, which is a stress hormone. So they're inducing their own stress by being on their devices, but they're also then sabotaging their sleep. So sleep and being on their phones and living in that fight, flight, free state when there's no saber to tiger, they're not under bodily threat, but the physiology is reacting as if there's a bodily threat. And so now no wonder they're stressed. No wonder they're, you know, have suicidal ideations. No wonder, you know, because they're on there socially comparing and destroying their mental and emotional health. We take toxins in from our environment. So it's literally going through a checklist of what are you listening to? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Are you around negative people all day? What do you taste, touch, feel, hear? It's all your senses. So what type of music are you listening to? Mm. You know, what TV shows or Netflix shows are you watching on a regular basis? And a little of anything is okay. It's when it goes to the impact and you'll always know if it's not good for you because if I'm on my phone or I'm watching a movie, my heart starts to race like crazy or my stomach hurts or I'm tense or my shoulders go up you're in fight, flight, freeze, and there's no bodily threat. So it starts with whatever we're perceiving and our thoughts triggers that physiological response. So again, it's looking and you should be doing this with your entire team. Like, let's kind of do a mental health check. Where are all those toxins potentially coming in? No wonder you're struggling at tennis because you're living in that fight, flight, freeze state all day. You're exhausted. You're mentally tapped. You're emotionally tapped. And now you're going to come in and do something under a very pressure-filled environment. Hmm. Well, <laughs> how's that going to roll? 
So again, it's understanding that now when it trickles beyond that, right, when it becomes debilitative to their relationships, to attending school class, to finding joy in moments, you know what I mean? Like, but we also be careful because kids just go, well, I'm sad. So I'm depressed or I'm anxious. So I'm depressed. I'm like, no, you feel anxiety right now. Why? Right. That kind of stuff. Mm. But obviously there's times to, to push to professionals. But some of this is like just be a, like living as a human on this planet. Well, yeah, I mean, as we've talked about, you know, that the, the various evolution over the last few decades, I mean, are, are there any newer trends that you're seeing that coaches should be aware of? I, I don't, it could be in anything, right? It could be in recruiting. It could be how they're interacting with their players. It could be culture. It could be mental health. It could be technology. Are there any other trends that now you're seeing that coaches should be aware of and thinking about how they're going to firstly maybe accept that trend that this is happening? They don't necessarily have control over it. And then how might they deal with it or prepare themselves to deal with it? They just they just don't have the coping skills. And we can tie that to technology. We can tie that to parenting it. We can tie it to youth sports. We can tie it to how we're so knee-jerk to be like, oh, the poor kid, let them take a break. They're struggling mentally. I'm like, no, where's the push through? The, yeah, there are times when maybe you need to take a break, but like we got to teach them the coping skills. And so again, it all goes back to when I when you recruit a student athlete, assume that they don't have those coping skills. And mm-hmm. as a coach, how are you going to strategically teach those? Telling a kid to be tough or to focus or have confidence or to relax or chill is not giving them the hows to do so. They yeah. know all those things and they don't know. They're not doing it to sabotage you as a coach. They would love to be able to relax and chill and breathe and do all these different things and to focus when they're supposed to and to have energy. And they would love to do all those things. They don't know how. And more importantly, they don't know why they even got to that place in the first place. And so, yeah, it's a lot of work and it's not in your job description typically, right? But it's that it, if you want to survive now or excel as a coach, right? And to find your own joy in this, it's admitting to yourself, I am under the assumption <laughs> that every student athlete that comes in do not, does not have these skills. So how, and the good thing is the more you build your culture, you'll get help because the student athletes that are older have been taught and trained and they'll be able to assist in the training of your student athletes. So it is a, like, it will pay off. It's just, if you're taking over a new program, it's going to, you're going to be doing it yourself for a while. And Tiff, is there one coping skill that you've seen that lands well with high number of student athletes it's like if there was one coping skill that that coaches should understand and try and help their student athletes with what might that be teaching them how to respond and not react out of the emotion so recognize the pain in your body wherever it is and don't if you have that uncomfortable feeling in your body and you're not under bodily threat that it's your thoughts and you're about to react and we do not make good decisions and we don't play tennis well when we're in a reaction state. Emotions are not bad, but when we make decisions out of a reactive state, we're usually the center of our stories. We're making it about us and we're going to do anything and behave in any way to feel less uncomfortable. And so we do that in habits that we form through our lives. And so it's getting even athletes to notice their bodies more. Their body will always indicate where, where's your head at and to teach, teach them. And one of the biggest things is, is just focus on your exhale. When you are telling an athlete to breathe is incorrect because they'd be dead if they weren't breathing. We have no issue with the inhale. It's our exhale that changes more in fight, flight, freeze or in a reactive state. And so it's just getting them to be like, 
one or two of those where they have to extend the exhale because to focus on your exhale like that, you have to be present. You can't be past or future thoughts. Mm-hmm. And physiologically, um, when we do not exhale or we're... <laughs> You're storing CO2 in the body, which creates lactic acid, which creates the heaviness and fatigue in your body. So as a tennis player on the court, I better see a whole bunch of exhales, Mm -hmm. extension of the exhales, or else you're actually, your body is then going to reinforce where your head is going. I don't feel good today. Something's off. Well, you're storing, no wonder you're like, this is not changing this. This feels not good, which then helps solidify what you thought was really going on. So the, the exhale, it's free, it's cheap, it's easy, it's easy travel, it's always with you. It's something that everyone can do. But often when we're in that reactive state, we don't want to. Even though we know it can help, we don't want to do it. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that, that strategy with the coaches. So you're going to be joining us in Las Vegas in December. Really excited to see you yeah. in, in person finally. And, and uh, you're going to be giving two presentations, one on court on, on Saturday, December 4th, and then kind of a classroom session on Sunday, December 5th. Can you give us a quick overview of, of what you might be covering out there? Yeah. So the on-court session is how often do you see like sports psych? How do we integrate mental skills training into practice? Um, And so I want to give you a bunch of uh, drills or ideas. I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm not a tennis coach, but just how to do the drills that you normally do, but how do you spice it up a little bit? And what does that do? And it's just changing different aspects of their environment Mm -hmm. so that they then this starts to go. I don't think we do a good enough job creating a psychological and physiological environment that mimics what athletes are going to, or tennis players are going to feel in a match. And so we need to do that over and over again, or no wonder they go to a match and they freak out, so to speak, or get in their heads because they haven't been practicing the way that they now have to play in a match. So that's how that's going to be. So a lot of takeaways that coaches can bring back to their teams or individual student athletes. And then I'll give more of the science and some other things that you can do off the court to develop more of this awareness and mental skills kind of training. But I want to make sure that the coaches come away with a lot of hows and takeaways. Excellent. Okay. Sounds good. Well, I hope uh, coaches start signing up and we'll see them out there. But Tiff, thank you for all the advice you provided today. Your support of the ITA means a lot to me and, and our staff. So we will see you in Las Vegas. Sounds awesome. Thanks, Dave. Myself and Tiff hope to see you guys out in Las Vegas from December 3rd to 6th. Be sure to go to convention.itatennis.com to find out more details about the schedule and list of speakers.